This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, and I'd like to talk about money and savings. And there's a very interesting development in terms of safeguarding your assets from financial abuse. Financial institutions are now required to ask clients if they want to designate a so-called trusted person, and this would be someone they can talk to about your health, mental capacity, and financial circumstances if they suspect financial exploitations or have concerns about your decision-making capacity. Now, when this was being instituted, CARP was very involved, and I gather that it was very controversial with a lot of different thoughts. So what do you think? Would you designate that so-called trusted person? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'd like to welcome David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP. Hey, guys. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hi. Well, Bill, let's begin with you. Uh, uh, First of all, welcome back. We haven't been talking for the last few weeks. Um, Thank you. Good to be back. Glad to have you back. Now, CARP was very involved with this rule. Uh, Tell us about that. Well, we we were. We first heard about it when some of our members got in touch with us uh, soon after the, uh, the move was proposed. And those members were very concerned. They felt that it was invasive, that it took control out of the seniors' hands by making them look uh, incompetent or possibly uh, incompetent to make their own uh, uh, decisions. And they uh, they were they were pretty uh, severe in their criticism of uh, once again assuming that just because you're older, you don't know what you're doing. Others, especially those in the industry, uh, thought it was a good safeguard that if somebody had an inability uh, to make good decisions, which can can happen to people as they get older, it was good to have to at least know there was somebody that the senior had named uh, to take over that uh, decision making rather than having it be uh, uh, someone who wasn't uh, close uh, to them. And it was really divided. CARP did not take any uh, specific uh, opinion either way. Uh, uh, we believe that, once again, uh, seniors uh, uh, have the right to make their own decisions. Uh, even They even have the right to make uh, mistakes, and they need decisions made with them, not for them. So this was something each individual should uh, consider. And now that the, uh, uh, the institutions who are dealing with it are getting in touch with people asking that they'd like to name someone, we're suggesting that uh, they consider it and do what they want to do, but don't feel pressed in either direction. David, how is this different? I mean, people designate an attorney or a substitute decision maker, and I guess there are rules about when well, that, that takes effect. Uh, so I was going to say, the, the key is what happens afterward, because you're right, we have power of attorney right now. We have, uh, I think you can give certain instructions about do not resuscitate or, or like end-of-life situations. But the question is, so let's say you do, and, you, and Bill's right, you don't have to, you're not obligated to, but you decide... I'm going to nominate person X as my trusted person. Now he informs the financial planner, I think David's not competent anymore to make his own decisions. The guy himself is not allowed to buy or sell or intervene, but he informs the financial planner that the elderly person is not competent. Okay, now now what? So there must be some legal framework that the financial planner 
can do or should do or maybe even must do? Does he face liability if he ignores the trusted person? What if a relative steps in and says that the trusted person isn't really that trusted? So I can foresee all kinds of complex litigation here unless they have spelled out the systems. And I, I'm sure they have. It's just that I don't know what they are. Well, there's there's uh, uh, paperwork because uh, I I forwarded you yes, an I email that uh, that someone received from their financial institution asking, do you want to designate this person? And it's like, well, you don't have to, but if you do, I'll send you all the paperwork. Now, right. I haven't looked at the paperwork, right, but right. I bet I bet it's probably a little difficult to understand, Peter. You know, I, I was looking at the form, um, you know, it, it's basically, um, you know, name, address, phone number, email, contact, you know, uh, relationship with, with the contact person. So it's not, it's not uh, very difficult to fill out, but, um, but uh, it will be sort of a, a, a task for financial advisors and banks and everything to keep track of it and to update it. So I... I think the onus might be on the the client to be to be doing that, you know, to to fill it out and to keep it updated. Because you 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 know, just as you can change um, powers of attorney, you can also change. You know, you can have a falling out with a friend or a family member, and uh, you know that could sort of uh, make the whole process a little bit more challenging. But but I think it, I think on the whole, maybe it's a good thing. I I, I think it's like it, this is the. Um, you know, the financial industry responding to complaints that, uh, you know, a lot of older seniors were being, um, you know, their money was being mishandled by, by uh, you know, sort of um, family members or friends, or that they were, they were making sort of, you know, decisions that may not have been the best for their own good. And there, and, and, you know, the financial advisor had nowhere to turn to. So th- this is, I, I think this might be a good thing. Like it, you know, it sort of reeks of the financial industry, um, you know, covering their backs. But, but I think you know, if there if there's someone trusted, you can talk to say, look, what's going on here? Is is have you noticed the person is declining in in her capacity to handle her her banking situation? You know, um, I I can't see it as a bad thing. You know, if you don't want one, you don't have to do it. And for those who want one, can do it. And so I I only see it as a, as a you know a positive step forward. Not it's not going to eliminate you know the uh, you know uh, financial exploitation, but it, it could it could sort of uh, limit it before it gets out of hand. Uh, Bill, I mean, you know, we know that in terms of elder abuse, financial abuse is the biggest uh, component of that. Yes, it is. And uh, I think we have to be clear on what this is. This this is something that happens much prior to when a, uh, a uh, somebody else would be appointed to look after your your affairs if you became uh, uh, incompetent. This is a chance for the individual to name somebody who the institution or the organization can check with if they think there might be something uh, going on in terms of the uh, senior's ability to make uh, make decisions. And it's, it's made, uh, this decision is made when the senior is fully competent and able to uh, do that. The the incompetency would, would set in at another point, and there is a process uh, uh, for this. So it is important, but but you point out that it's financial uh, fraud and uh, financial abuse of seniors is almost always uh, done by a, a family member or a friend uh, in more than more than half the cases that we're aware of. So there's always a chance that you might appoint the wrong person as your trusted uh, secondary on your account and might run into the same problem. And that's why it really has to be an individual uh, decision that the senior themselves is comfortable with. Okay, people uh, in the audience listening, I'd like to know, are you going to appoint someone to be your trustee person? Do you think that's a good idea? Because, you know, uh, if when people start running into problems, they don't necessarily realize it themselves. And even if family members see something, you know, bringing it up is really, really difficult. That's a whole other conversation. (laughs) So people, would you appoint 
a trusted friend or family member that your bank or mutual fund or whatever can turn to and say, hey, is everything okay with John? Because uh, we're not so sure. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll free one 866 740 And David, we also saw some numbers today on indebtedness, and it's a little better than it was in the fourth quarter of 2021, but Canadians on average still owe a buck 83 for every dollar they earn. It's true. And the um, prospect of having to service that debt at progressively higher interest rates is very worrisome if you're somebody that's sort of hanging on for dear life, you know, as it is. And I think uh, that's why they're so worried about the housing market, because there are so many people who are barely managing it at record low interest rates, and now those interest rates are going to go up. So uh, I think, broadly speaking, it's a concern for our particular demographic. It's an interesting problem because a huge percentage, 75% or more of uh, seniors own their own home, most of them without any mortgage. So um, not really concerned about that. Um, And you could argue selfishly, selfishly, that if they've got no little or no debt, and they they tend to have less debt, the older you get, um, interest rates are a chance to finally earn a decent return on your your fixed uh, assets. So it's a kind of a conflict with the direction that the the broader population is going. But there's still a lot that are uh, seniors. Over a million seniors have an income of 25000 or less. So they're very worried about this. So you, ha- you have both, really. I'm going to take a call from Jane in Scarborough uh, about uh, the, the previous topic, because I think yeah. it's really important. Jane in Scarborough, hello. How are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Fine, thanks. Go ahead. Yeah, this topic hit really close to home. Uh, my mom, at the age of 75, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. The uh, doctor advised her to put my sister and I on her bank account uh, to make sure that things were okay. At 78, the Alzheimer's really took hold. My brother got a hold of her bank card and drained her bank account every single month, never paid the bills, never paid the rent. Her phone got cut off. She got evicted at the age of 79. And my sister and I were powerless to stop it. We went to lawyers and judges and Ontario um, we went everywhere. We went to our, our premier. We went to everyone, and they all said, she gave him the card. There's nothing you can do. But had this been in place, the bank could have stopped him, and she wouldn't have been evicted. And he left her in financial ruin. He, he spent every cent she had, and she had nothing when she was evicted. Oh, dear. That's a horrible Terrible. story. It was. It was a nightmare wow. to sit there and watch it and see it unfolding before our eyes, and we couldn't stop him. And with her Alzheimer's, he was her little golden child, and we kept saying, Mom, you have no money. Oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. Your brother's handling it. I'm fine, I'm fine. And she wasn't. And she got evicted. And when she came to live with me, when the police finally found her, because they ran, she had a suitcase with a deck of cards in it and a pair of track pants. And that was all she had to her name. That's so sad. That's so sad. Uh, l- let's hope that this new regulation could hopefully prevent a For situation sure. like that. I hope so, too, because the worst part of it, too, we weren't alone. We found out this goes on so many times in so many families, and no one can stop it. It needs to get passed, and it needs to be where, I mean, even the, a paramedic that came one time to, to take her to the hospital, he said, yeah, my uncle did, did the same thing to my mom, and we couldn't stop it. And, yeah, something needs Terrible. to be done because elder financial abuse and elder abuse, period, has got to stop. It's got it. People need to stand up and say something and stop it from happening. It was a horrible, horrible nightmare. It reads like a Stephen King novel, but it really happened. 
It it really happened. And, and uh, again, uh, if you were listening, you know, Bill was just telling us that a lot of people, when they're fine and they see this, they say, this rule is, is patronizing and it takes away from my agency and I'm not going to do it. But I guess at least people have the option of doing this when they're okay. And- it would be good if they said, just in case. Because we didn't know my mother was going to turn out like she did. I mean, at the end, she couldn't even say my name for three years. She had no idea who I was. And you don't know it's happening when it starts. And, well, you you know when it's happening, like at the very, very beginning. But it should be put in place as as a what if. Not Not a when, but an if. And and it's interesting because there are, if you are diagnosed, there are rules around when you can change the person that you designate as, as your attorney. And uh, I think that if you have mild cognitive impairment, you still can change the person, but not you much can. beyond that. Yes, you can. And I mean, even with, with the doctor, my mom had gone for a cognitive test. And this was in Brampton, and the doctor um, had to the test. And as my mother was failing every question, the, the 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 girl would would coach my mother into giving her an answer. And I went up to him and I said, "What have you done? You've just made you've given him carte blanche to keep this up." Oh no, she's fine. I said, "No, she's not." And then, not a year later, she was evicted because he just kept taking all her money. Jane, thank you for sharing your story. I can hear that it is still painful after, presumably after uh, probably some time has passed. Yeah, she died at the beginning of COVID. So yeah, it still hurts. It uh, still hurts. So, but anyway, I just wanted to get it out there that you know this does happen, people. You got to take care. Okay, Jane. Thank you so much for that. Thanks. Okay, Lynn, in Mount Forest. Hello, Lynn. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? Go ahead. Good. Um, uh, we too, my family, we and my sisters and I also went through a hellish time with our parents. My dad um, was the financial person. My mom had been diagnosed with dementia. And um, unfortunately, he was the one that was really unwell otherwise, but his mind was fine. And when he passed away, um, we had found that my parents had made a lot of investments um, with different um, groups, financial um, institutions. And my father passed away in 2012. And finally, last year, Scotia McLeod recognized that my father had passed away after sending multiple death certificates, et cetera, like emailing, they finally recognized that he was gone. And that was only because my mother had passed away in 2020. Uh, and it's just, it's just, um, just a nightmare. Like we, our, their estate still isn't settled. And it's just been a nightmare trying to get, financial institutions to recognize and to respond even um, with when it comes to something like that. And, you know, we all, my sisters and I, it was all three of us that have power of attorney. And um, that makes it difficult, too, because, you know, all three of us had to be on the phone at the same time and trying to work with a lawyer. It just, it just, is a nightmare. You know, um, I, I think that it's important that, like, unfortunately, when my dad passed away, they hadn't um, decided on somebody being like having the power of financial care. It would have been a lot easier if that had taken place. But at the time, um, it just, my dad just went downhill so fast and it just was a difficult time for us all. And we weren't really thinking about that at the time. And my mom was still grappling with accepting that she had dementia and was, would get very angry if we would try to help her in that. So it, it just, 
it was a hard time. Thanks, Lynn, for your call. Appreciate sharing your story. Um, it, it, that's a that's a whole other conversation. You know, if your financial institution makes a mistake, good luck correcting it. Sometimes, uh, I, I mean, and uh, my husband has a family situation where he is the designated financial person for someone who is incompetent and just to do any little thing. Most of the people he deals with at that bank have never heard of this. He comes with, you know, huge, vast portfolios of documents and they don't get it. It's, it's very difficult and can also be extremely expensive because you need lawyers. And, uh, you know, frankly, a lot of the lawyers couldn't figure it out. <laughs> so it, all of these things are difficult. And if this, you know, makes one of the steps easier, Peter, um, I, I think you're right. It's probably a good thing to consider. It also bears looking into what, what the, you know, what the advisor, what the next step is after the advisor hears, um, you know, okay, there's something up. What, what, what is the next step? What machinery does, do they put into effect to, to sort of, uh, you know, get the situation looked into at least. And, and, um, that, that'll be, uh, I, have been just checking around there, the, the information on it, but it doesn't seem too clear what the next step is. And I, I know the net, the legislation is brand new. So, um, but, um, that, that would, for a future show, maybe we could look into that. Well, Bill, do you have a, do you have any idea? A couple of things. Um, we're, we're really dealing with three very different uh, issues here that, that CARP has been concerned about and advocating for for, for years. The, uh, the trusted advisor is really a protection for the advisor, the institution, mm-hmm. and some comfort that as, as an investor, you'll have somebody else who, who they can talk with if they don't think they're getting the right answer from you. But there is still no duty to report. And this is something that CARP has been after for years and years, that banks and other institutions must report when they see uh, something going on. So with the first caller story of the brother who was emptying the, the bank account, uh, uh, the banks f- uh, shy away from reporting or questioning, even when they see this kind of thing happening, when a, when a younger relative comes in with an older relative and starts doing different things with their bank account, the banks hide behind the uh, privacy rules and do not, there is no duty to report. Now, there's a duty to report in healthcare if you know of abuse. There's a duty to report with children if you know of abuse, but there's no duty to report for seniors in financial uh, situations. So in the first case, that's something that has to happen if it's going to be, uh, if it's going to be uh, solved. In the second place, we have been advocating for years that there be one uh, one tribunal, one authority, one person, either provincially or federally, that a family like your caller could have gone to and and said, uh, look, I'm not getting the information uh, that I need from my financial institution. There is none. Now, the, the banks have, have come a little bit of the way in the last year. They've appointed a vice president of each of the banks to be in charge of uh, being an ombudsman, but still, that is somebody in the ploy is of, of the of the banks and not overall for all of them. And that's what CARP thinks should uh, happen. So there are three very different areas that are really weak in our protection of uh, of older people in our country when it comes to managing their finances. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, thanks for that, Bill. Uh, Peter, I think that you have it exactly right that we have to do a lot more work on this topic because, uh, yeah, and I, I'm not quite clear even why would they put this new legislation into effect without being clear of, okay, what happens next? Yeah, comes and, from and the none, of the, none of the literature says anything. It just says what it is. So, And that sort of that sort of suggests what Bill was saying that that it's more of um you know like protecting their backs than than it is a a useful document but but it bears looking into for sure and um and maybe we can report back in a later show David I was going to say I think that uh, a possible solution would be 
the size of this market and the importance of this market, all the banks have realized that the quote-unquote older population is where a lot of the wealth is, a lot of the investment is. They're all making major efforts to reach out to that group. The financial services industry is starting to create specialty certificates and seniors planning and senior qualified advisors. And I think there's an opportunity for the older quote-unquote market to step up and say, okay, if you want my business, what are you going to do to protect me and make it a point of um, you're not telling us what the protections are, so I'm going to go to somebody else and make the financial community aware that if they can't map out the processes and the guidelines and the safety that some other institution will get that business that they're all fighting for because they are all fighting for that business right now. And maybe it's time uh, for the, uh, and CARP could certainly play a big role here for us to step up as consumers and say, okay, you want uh, you want our business. What are you doing to protect us? Hmm. Very interesting and very worthy of a follow-up, sure. <laughs> which we'll do in the coming weeks. In yes. the meantime, thank you so much, Bill Van Gorder, Peter Mugridge, and David Kravitz, live and in the studio with me. Great talking. Great to be here. Thanks, Thanks Libby. Libby. <laughs> Thanks, Libby. Okay, we are taking a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a heart-wrenching event underway now, and that is victim impact statements in the trial of Alec Manassian, convicted of 10 murders, 16 attempted murders. It's now 11 murders in the 2018 van attack when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Today, the court began hearing the victim impact statements as part of the sentencing hearing hearing for Alec Manassian, who was found guilty of 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder last year, and that was for the April 23, 2018 van attack. The sentencing was delayed while the judge waited for the Supreme Court to rule on whether it was constitutional to impose consecutive life sentences along with consecutive time for parole ineligibility. Now, about a month ago, the court decided that actually it was, quote, cruel and unusual punishment uh, to impose these consecutive sentences with consecutive 25 years of ineligibility for parole. So, does this just mean that these impact statements have absolutely no impact on the sentence? And what do you think of that decision? I'd like to hear from you. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by criminal defense lawyer Ari Goldkind. Hi, Ari. It would be great to be with you. Uh, so just explain to us again uh, what the, the, the purpose of the victim impact statements are, because it's not just for sentencing, but, uh, you know, why they are actually not going to have any impact on sentencing. This is one of the worst weeks I think you could have in a courthouse, a more meaningful, more meaningless week. I can't come up with a week that's harder on the victims, their families, their loved ones. I don't know how many of them truly understand that by reading these things out loud, because they don't have to be read out loud, they can be submitted in writing, that it's going to make absolutely no difference to anything. There will be some that tell you, look, these will be saved and kept 22 years from now at his parole hearing, which he will bring because he is a remorseless man. And there is no doubt he'll seek, just like Paul Bernardo, his release, he'll try and say all the magic words, I'm rehabilitated, I've seen the error of my ways, I found God, I'm no longer the monster that I was. But what's going on in a Toronto court this week, I think it has escaped national scrutiny. I think the Supreme Court decision has escaped national scrutiny because people are either too busy being distracted by other things or just intimidated 
by saying anything about this decision. So all of these people whose lives were destroyed, their loved ones taken from them, are literally saying things out loud in the same air, uh, courtroom, face-to-face, as the killer who's enjoying this. He wanted his moment of fame. He wanted the notoriety. And nothing they say, because you asked me the question at the beginning, the victim impact, nothing they say can do anything to change Judge Malloy's sentence, which is already written, it's already set in stone because of a Supreme Court decision that, in my view, has escaped serious scrutiny. Um, yeah, I'm a bit. Uh, what do you? I mean, I'm sure you've seen the the written judgments on the Supreme Court decision. What What was the thinking? Well, let's first of all. It's 147 pages that I I think, as a lawyer, I understand it. Their thinking is, look, if you take away somebody's right to rehabilitate themselves, they're just going to be violent in jail, and they're going to stab other prisoners and guards, and it's going to look like something out of an arts and entertainment or A&E or whatever network shows in the United States, those San Quentin or, you know, those prison shows like Oz, one of my favorite shows on HBO that they're all just going to stab each other because they're hopeless and they'll never get out. I think that's one of the weakest arguments I've ever heard in my life about this issue. And just for your listeners, Libby, to understand the issue, because many Canadians don't. We're busy looking at our inflation, gas prices, grocery prices, which are really at top of mind. In 2011, the Stephen Harper government, otherwise known as Voldemort, because you're not allowed to say his name anymore, decided that if you're a serial killer or a mass murderer, you don't get to get a discount for the second and third and fourth lives that you take. That for the purpose of what's called parole ineligibility, Libby, because the sentence is always life. That's not going to change. Okay. But for parole ineligibility, if you kill three people, if you kill a mother, a father, and their two beautiful children in their beds at night, each one of those lives matters. So the judge can. Now, this is the key. Libby, to our conversation, the judge has the discretion, not must, not shall, decide should this person ever get a chance to breathe the same air as you and I and Zoomer radio listeners. The Trudeau government, in a very tribalistic world, Libby, you know how tribalistic our world is, they never sought to change or strike down this law. In fact, the justice minister is on record saying he supports it. The mosque shooter, Bissonnette, his lawyers brought a challenge to say it's cruel and unusual and an affront to the dignity of the killer to not give them the chance to say they're rehabilitated, reformed, they've seen the error of their ways and to apply for parole. And that is where we are today. And this week that we're talking about, Libby, was booked before that decision because I can assure you without knowing or ever speaking to her honor, that the one judge in Canada that I think would have taken these consecutive parole and eligibility periods and stacked them, that's the term, to stack them, so that Mr. Manassian would have rotted in jail where he belongs, would be Judge Malloy. So I can only imagine, Libby, what is going through Judge Malloy's mind right now as we speak. Literally, this is happening as we speak, as she hears first responders, loved ones, Uh, firefighters, police officers, victims, community members, those who witnessed the carnage, come to her court, bear their soul, and there's not a single thing she can do about it. Hmm. Uh, I want to give the numbers out again. We still have a few minutes in this segment. People, what do you think? Did the Supreme Court uh, make a big mistake in changing that law? Now, You know, one of the arguments that I hear in these particularly hideous cases is, well, they're not going to get parole anyway, but there's the whole question of a parole hearing. And, you know, it's going to be a long time from now, but there's still going to be people who will have to deal with the fact that there's a parole hearing on this, Ari. So let me address that, Libby, because you've clearly been listening to me, because in every uh, speech or segment or rant I do about this ruling, I always do throw in, look, he's not going to get parole. Bernardo's not going to get parole. Manassian's not going to get parole. But imagine, Libby, you're the loved one of one of the elderly people that was mowed down 
along Yonge Street or in a city that prides itself on its diversity, one of the people of many diverse backgrounds that this monster mowed down. Imagine you're one of them and you get a notice that in 22 years, he's going to be applying for parole and he's done all the things he's supposed to do. He's taking counsel. No, he's not going to because his brain works in a very different way. But Bernardo did. And you know, Libby, because you know the story well, that the French and Mahaffey families feel they have to be there to speak for their loved ones, their children that were robbed from them and tortured and killed. So it's very easy for me as a lawyer to sit here and say, yeah, the Supreme Court talks about the parole board being smart and having discretion. But what cold comfort is that 22 years from now? That's what we're talking about, Libby, 20, maybe 21 years from now, actually, where there's going to be a notice that there's going to be a parole hearing. And he's got 5,000 pages that say he's found God. He's seen the light. He said all the magical things. Are you as a family member going to take it for granted that the parole board will say, hey, you're wasting our time? And the other reason I find that argument, which, again, I'm the one saying it, Libby, all over and over, he's not going to get parole. But that's a facile argument, in my view, to what the Supreme Court had to decide, which is, look, we have to be in a country, Libby, and we see this in Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, Jacob Hogard, Jean Gomeshi. We have to be obsessed that the wrong people don't get sent to jail, that the innocent don't get convicted, that we don't have wrongful convictions. But when you have somebody who did it and admitted it, and there was a trial of an issue or a guilty plea or a jury of 12, and then a court of appeal says they had a fair trial, the presumption of innocence isn't gone. What message are you sending to Canadians that you can kill as many people as you want and to a Supreme Court that is obsessed with judicial discretion, striking down mandatory minimums, saying judges are in better positions to know what to do. You have two separate political parties that agree that this is a democratic law that reflects the values of Canadians that each life can count in the calculus. What does it say to Canadians that whether he killed one person intentionally planned and deliberate on Young Street or killed 11 and mowed over 16 others. That a judge has to sit there with her hands tied behind her back, that is to me one of the more facile arguments I've heard, and I could have easily seen the Supreme Court going 9-0 to zero the other way, saying in our Constitution, certain people by their actions, Libby, certain people, an extraordinarily small number of people, have deprived themselves not us doing it, but our law allows them to deprive themselves of the right to breathe the same air as you and I. Uh, uh, is there any chance that this could ever be changed uh, if never. there's a different Supreme Court or something no, like that? No, it will never be changed. That's one of the unfortunate parts about it in our democracy, where they've said it's unconstitutional. Now, I don't know that they consulted Pierre Trudeau about this when the Charter of Rights was written. I'm being somewhat facetious. but again. It's a nine to zero decision that says it's cruel and unusual and an affront to the dignity of the killer that he can't apply for parole. And many, maybe people are persuaded by that. The other thing they say in paragraph, I believe it's 144 of the decision. So any of your keen uh, listeners who actually want to see it uh, is the Supreme Court. And this is in the mosque shooting, just to be very clear. I think it's page paragraph 142. They say, look, our decision is not about the value of each human life, just about the government's power to punish offenders. On what planet could the Supreme Court not have come out and in their infinite wisdom come out and said, look, it's cruel and unusual for somebody who doesn't kill 16 people or run over 16 people or 11 people. But, you know, these laws are interpreted by humans. And all I will say is this. It's almost a shame that the Supreme Court doesn't meet the very people that are in Judge Malloy's courtroom today, bearing their hearts and souls about the loved ones lost. There seems to be a disconnect between, I would say, Ottawa and the towers of Ottawa and the carnage that we're seeing on our streets. And to me, I'm a criminal defense lawyer who is obsessed with the presumption of innocence and making sure people don't get an unfair trial. But once you have somebody that has done this sort of thing, the idea that it's cruel and unusual or an affront to their dignity because we don't want them to stab people in jail, Libby, 
that's an argument that I have a lot of trouble with, both as Clearly. a lawyer, but especially as a citizen. Clearly, Ari. And uh, thank you for explaining that. I think we know where you stand on this one. Thanks a lot. Pleasure, Libby. Bye-bye. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, uh, what about the future of the NDP? We will be talking to somebody who is being touted as a possible new leader of the party when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The provincial election that saw Doug Ford's PCs win a second larger majority government uh, also saw the two major opposition parties, the NDP and the Liberals, losing their leaders before the night was over. The NDP is still the official opposition, but the question is, who will take over and where did they go wrong? Marit Stiles was reelected in her riding of Davenport by a landslide. She was the outspoken education critic in the last session, session, and she is touted as a possible leadership candidate. And she joins me now. Marit, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, uh, I would imagine there is a lot of soul searching and uh, second guessing right now in the party, in your party, as well as the Liberals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, we wasn't the result that we wanted. You know, I mean, we really uh, set out to uh, to form government. You know, we really did. And uh, we lost a few seats. We maintained our official opposition status, which I think is very important because I think the role of opposition is just is, is fundamental. Right. Um, but, you know, absolutely not the result we were looking for uh, and a lot of thinking you know, has to go in now because really four years uh, till the next election, it's not a long time. <laughs> well, they say that a week is an eternity in politics. <laughs> I guess it's not a long time if you have to uh, really regroup. Do you have thoughts on where your campaign went wrong? You know, I think that we, um, I think that one of the things that we probably uh, needed to do um, a little bit more is is give people a clear sense of what we were proposing, you know. And I don't want to I don't want to underestimate you know the moment, right? I mean, I think obviously you know the 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 decision of the voters of Ontario is always the right decision, right? I mean, you, you really have to respect. Uh, that's something I've certainly learned uh, knocking on doors is you know you respect differences of opinion and you respect where people p- place their vote. It's it's fundamental, but I do think it's. Um, it was tough to inspire people. Uh, a lo- I think one of the things that I find just the most disappointing overall was just how few people actually voted. Um, and you that, and our that, audience, that was the thing yeah. that they were really upset about. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that we've, and I will say, you know, from speaking on the doorsteps in my riding, but also, you know, in other parts of the province over the last months before the election, um, I really felt like people were, well, first of all, people were tired. Right. They were tired. And I think there's a sense as well that they've been taken for granted, that their vote doesn't make a difference. And that that breaks my heart. Right. Because of course you don't get into this line of work unless you have some kind of belief in democracy and the importance of, of government and elected positions. And um, and so I, I really feel like there was a lot of work that we need to do, but not just us, all the parties. In, in in really speaking and representing everyone um, and connecting with those people who really feel like that they just haven't, that their vote doesn't matter anymore. Because I really felt like that was what that was about, is a sense that my vote won't really make a difference. And that's just uh, that's too bad. There, yeah. there are people who say that at the end of the day, on certain things, which I think should have been center in the campaign, like long-term care, it was actually hard to tell the difference. I mean, one party is spending a billion dollars over three years. The other one is 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 building 30,000 beds. It, it was kind of just hard to see the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think when you look at some of the things that you know, um, Premier Ford did, for example, you know, I may have fundamentally disagreed with his, you know, his ending the license plate stickers and, 
and all of these things, but they were easy digestible tidbits that he threw out. And that is, I think, a lot of where, um, you know, modern day politics has gone. And the hard part is that, you know, the, the issues that we face are a little more complicated than that. And I, I know also that a lot of people who were really hit hard by COVID, whether they had family members who passed away or whether they lost their jobs, uh, any number of things, or parents, you know, whose kids struggled with school. All of these folks um, also felt really beaten down yep. and tired. And I think that they felt that they weren't seeing the answers. Now, I really feel pretty passionately still about what we were presenting. I think we had some really good ideas and uh, strong ideas that would have made big changes and good changes for people. But, you know, communicating that in an election where, uh, you know, it's, well, frankly, where a lot of the politicians, including Mr. Ford, spent most of their time hiding from the media uh, is really tough. Well, really they tough. they yeah. promoted themselves as the party of yes, and and you guys yeah. as as the party yeah. of no. I mean, one of the things that I have to say had me scratching my head sometimes is that mm-hmm. uh, Andrea Horvath kept saying we have to stop Doug Ford, and I'm thinking stop him from what? And you know, it's difficult to make an argument mm-hmm. that they're cutting when they spend twenty five percent more than the Wynn government. Yeah, it's, you know what, it's really, and, and you're absolutely right, like those numbers, once you start talking big numbers, it's really hard to communicate what the impact is. So when the numbers look like they're going up, spending looks like it's up. I mean, in some sense it is. But in fact, in most areas, including health and education, it isn't keeping up with the increased costs, but, you know, whether that's, um, uh, that's the cost of materials or resources. It's those costs are increasing at a rate. And so it's not keeping up with inflation, right? And so it is, in fact, a cut. It's really hard to communicate that clearly. You can hear me struggling, right? It's hard to, yep. it's hard to communicate these things. And, and also, I agree with you. Like, I think it's not enough to say, um, that we have to stop the cuts. I think what we need to be able to tell people and we, we, is our challenge over the next few years is how would we do it differently? What would, what would schools look like that are diff, that's different than today? How would our healthcare system be under an NDP government? What does that really look like? Not just dollars and cents, but actually reform. You know, how does that, what does that look like in terms of the services that people rely on every day? And I think that's our challenge in part, right? And it's also just to inspire people, to inspire people to think that things can be done differently. I, it's, Again, you know, as you said, too, like it's one of the things I think that's on a lot of our minds as Ontarians is what is it going to take to inspire hope to, to make make these elections relevant for people again? And and that is going to take some doing right. It's going to take energy. It's going to take good ideas. And it's going to take, you know, some something that shows people like we, we don't have to settle for this. We can we can demand better. The the other interesting thing was that it was said that you were splitting the opposition vote with a resurgent liberal party, but that mm-hmm. didn't happen. I think once again, there's a lot of questions about the kind of polling that we're seeing and that's getting a lot of play and how it's being used in elections. It definitely, uh, you know, and I'll be honest and tell you, I think even as a local candidate, um, you know, we were, the stuff we were seeing on the doorsteps was very different from what we were seeing in polls. But again, um, you know, you, you think there's, these are smart people, you know, pushing these polls out there. Well, you know, polls can be used for all kinds of purposes. And they told a story that was not correct. Uh, they didn't tell the real story. They didn't show the real picture. And most people I found, for example, were really surprised. They didn't know that there were only, um, you know, seven uh, liberal MPPs in the legislature. And, and maybe they did that really maybe have been irrelevant, right? But to them at the time, but I think that, you know, the real picture, the true picture of what was at stake and what and how we were going to actually defeat Ford if we were able to, um, wasn't really shared with people. And, and so I think that's another question we have to start asking ourselves is how are we using these polls? Um, which, what are we doing? Like, are we, are we actually, is what we're seeing polling or is it just modeling based on past election results that just are irrelevant right now? Like, you know, Ontario changes. It's so, changing. So are you running for the leadership? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I am definitely very seriously considering it. I'm, you know, talking to my family, talking to my colleagues, talking to the party members and, uh, and my community to see what they think and mostly to see like what they, you know, whether they think that I could, 
achieve some of the things I've talked about with you, right? You know, it's tough, right? I won't lie. I mean, in politics, especially as a woman, but definitely everybody, you know, um, the, the higher up you go, the, the more you take on, the more of a target you become. And I felt that, you know, Andrea was pretty unfairly um, uh, attacked by the by Ford or painted as the no person when that wasn't my experience with her at all. And you have to be prepared to know who you are, be comfortable with what you're trying to achieve. Um, this is These are the questions I'm asking right now. And I, I'm, I'll, I'm going to keep thinking about it and looking at it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very excited. I will say, I think our party is very excited about uh, the opportunity to chart a new path, you know, and we have a really great opportunity to actually uh, be in the running for government in four years. Um, is there a left center or left right thing happening in the leadership choice? I know that, uh, people are also talking about Kristen Wong Tam, uh, who I think would be more on the left. Uh, so who would your competition be? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a bunch of people thinking about it. I don't know that anybody has yet said, I'm doing it. We're all kind of, I think, in the same place of, of considering options and, talking to people and seeing if we're the right fit. But I, you know, I I do want to say, I think that it isn't so much in our party about left versus right. I think, you know, or left versus center. Um, I think the real key is going to be, yes, um, ideas, bold ideas. It's going to be about, um, you know, willingness to run a really successful um, election and what that means, you know, what everybody's vision is for how we are going to defeat Ford. Um, And, and, it's going to mean, you know, which of us emerges as somebody who can energize and inspire, again, especially those, not just folks who vote NDP, but folks who maybe uh, traditionally vote liberal or traditionally vote conservative. Or um, are new conservatives that Ford has got to vote for him. It, well, exactly, you know, and, and all of those folks um, who, again, who didn't vote this time. You know, I, I found and I will say, too, um, you know, when Andrea took over the NDP, there were only seven MPPs at the time. Uh, we were struggling financially. Um, we weren't seen as a serious contender for government. Uh, and she did make, you know, the party more diverse. She brought in a lot of young people. And I think that's something we have to keep doing, right? Uh, I saw more young people involved and engaged in our NDP campaigns across the province than I ever can remember in this last election. The kids, uh, they want different. They want something more. They see their future as quite grim, and and they need somebody who's going to push for change that gives them hope. And so, if we can if we can tap into that, if we can give them um, a reason to hope and to vote, uh, I think we're going to be uh, in a really good place um, to form government, but also just to simply to to hopefully inspire all those folks who may not have felt this time like voting was right for them. Okay, and on that note, we're going to wrap things up. We're out of time. Merritt Styles. I hope we talk again soon and see how things are developing. Uh, me too. Thanks so much. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.